I'm Kate Daniels. Don't we all like some entertainment? Well, this morning, we're going to explore that topic through the focus on puzzles and brain teasers. Professor Stephen Landsberg teaches economics at the University of Rochester in New York State. In reading his latest book, because he has authored a number of them, reading Can You Outsmart an Economist? 100 Plus Puzzles to Train Your Brain, I have to believe his students have a great time in his classes. I think any of us who might think we could never consider an economics class might think differently once we meet Professor Landsberg. So let's do just that as we acknowledge January being National Puzzle Month. Professor Stephen Landsberg, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. I am quite looking forward to it, and I expect our listeners will be as well, because uh, as I had noted to you before we actually started this conversation, this uh, could make us feel like we're in an economics classroom at the university, but not just any kind. This is going to be one of those great classes, right? Well, I, I, I hope so. I know not everybody has great memories of all of their classes back in college, but I hope this will be fun. Well, part of the fun is, of course, the way you present your material, and uh, you've done it now with a a brand new book, which is 100 Plus Puzzles to Train Your Brain, and this is during this month of January, which is, I guess, National Puzzle Month, so very fitting. Yeah, and puzzles puzzles are fun, and, um, you know, this is a book that I think will teach you a lot about economics, but the primary lesson of the book is that Thinking is fun. Solving puzzles is fun. Economics is largely about solving puzzles, and uh, that's that's what I want to share with people. And so a big part of this, too, is, of course, uh, the stimulation of that. The puzzles are really also so greatly beneficial for our brain, and that is another issue, you know, we're thinking about in terms of making our brain stay healthy for the long term, and this can certainly benefit us. I hope so. I'm not a. I don't have the kind of expertise that would allow me to tell you uh, about the neuroscience of that. But uh, I certainly have seen the same popular articles you have that suggest that uh, thinking and working on puzzles is an important component in keeping our brains young. And uh, if we could do that for people, that's that's another good reason to do these things. So as you really ventured on your path of being a professor of economics. Did it start out this way? Did you have this idea or was it something just evolved over time? Well, I think this is what appealed to me uh, about economics from the beginning was uh, it it happened when I was in, uh, I went to graduate school to study math, but uh, most of my friends there turned out to be economics majors and they were they would work on their homework. They would show me their homework problems. Uh, they would talk about their what they were learning over lunch in the cafeteria, and uh, it all just seemed so fascinating. They were always they always had these uh, remarkable little brain teasers to solve, and they were the kind of puzzles that you didn't need to be taking a class to think about. They were uh, simple puzzles like if uh, the price of wheat goes up, what happens to the price of bread, or. Uh, 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 you know, what what happens if you put a strong pig and a weak pig in a box and make them fight over food? What do you expect will happen? Uh, it turns out that the obvious answers to those questions, and there often were obvious answers, but the obvious answers were consistently wrong, and that fascinated me, and that made me want to know more. And, and that is the fascinating thing. You know, we 
I think this, uh, of course, has a, such a broad range of being beneficial for us because, as you said, you know, the obvious answer isn't the answer, and it can really make a difference in all aspects of our life, not the least of it being per- perhaps finances and understanding those crazy headlines in the paper about the up and down things that go on in the market. Yeah, and uh, you know, once again, the, I'm, I'll, I'm repeating myself, but uh, the consistent theme is that what's obvious is not always the same as what's true, um, not just in financial markets, but in everyday life, in the way we interact with people in our businesses, in our families, in our friendships, uh, in, in our classrooms. Uh, so often we expect people to behave in one way, we see them behave in another way. And uh, we're trying to figure out why they're doing that. So to get a a little taste of it, perhaps, as you mentioned uh, just a moment ago about, you know, the price of wheat and the price of bread and how that all goes together, maybe that will give our listeners a chance, uh, an opportunity to understand just one of the concepts, one of the stories or puzzles, if you will, of how this works out in the book. Sure. So suppose you um, put a legal price ceiling on wheat. Suppose you make it illegal to sell wheat at at the current market price and you require sellers to sell uh, at a much lower price. Question is, what happens to the price of bread? And the obvious answer to that is that wheat is part of what gets used in making bread. If you drive down the price of wheat, you're going to uh, make it cheaper to make bread. And if bread is cheaper to make, then people will sell it at a lower price. Uh, that's the obvious answer. That's the answer most people give. But it's exactly the wrong answer because, in fact, if you put a price ceiling, uh, wheat farmers will supply less wheat. There will be less wheat to go around, and one way or another, that's got to mean that less bread gets made. If less bread is made, then bread is going to be in short supply, and that's going to drive up the price of bread. So in, there's a case where things go in exactly the opposite of the direction that you might have expected. And this is so valuable, I feel, to us. We just make certain kinds of assumptions or perhaps don't even think about it at all. But obviously, there's a great benefit. This is an example that we can apply to so many different areas of things that go on in our life. Yeah, and I, you know, I'd like to uh, uh, make sure that uh, your listeners uh, uh, get the message that this is not just about things like the price of bread. It's not just about the things that you traditionally think of as economics, but also so many of the other ways that we interact with each other in the world. May, may I choose an ex- another example to give to you? For sure, yes. Um, there is uh, tremendous evidence that when college students fill out, at the end of the semester, they fill out the evaluation forms on how they like the professor. There's tremendous evidence that Physically attractive professors get better ratings. Uh, uh, Male professors, female professors, if they're rated physically attractive, they are also rated as better teachers. And the question is, what's the reason for that? Now, uh, I find when I ask most people what's the reason for that, I get answers about students being shallow, students being uh, swayed by physical beauty, students caring about things other than the actual quality of the teaching. But in fact, if you look a little bit deeper, if you think about the incentives people are facing, you discover that 
the best looking teachers probably are on average the best teachers. The students' evaluations probably are accurate, and here's why. Physically beautiful people have a lot of job opportunities that other people don't have, not just as movie stars, not just as models, but in anything that involves retailing, dealing with the public, sales, physically beautiful people do better. And so on average, a physically beautiful person who chose to teach in a college gave up a lot of other good opportunities in order to do that. And on average, that's going to be a person who's very enthusiastic about teaching. Uh, by contrast, the teacher who's not so beautiful, who didn't have the opportunities in sales or in modeling or all these other things, uh, is more likely to have gone into teaching because it was the only opportunity and therefore to be less enthusiastic and therefore probably to do not quite so good a job. Uh, in general, any profession where looks don't matter, in any profession where looks don't matter, the best-looking people are going to be the best at that because they're the people who gave up the most alternative opportunities in order to do that. As I say in the book, if you show me a lighthouse keeper with movie star good looks, I'm going to show you the world's best lighthouse keeper because anybody who gave up a career in the movies in order to keep a lighthouse is somebody who really wants to keep a good lighthouse. <laughs> It's, it, it's that sort of thing that is so fascinating that, uh, again, is uh, stimulating our brains to really consider this and, and let that play out in so many different scenarios. Um, absolutely. And, you know, there's scenario after scenario where, once again, it's not just that the obvious answer is wrong, but that the way you get to the right answer is by thinking about the incentives people were facing uh, another example, uh, we have a great deal of evidence that in a lot of cultures around the world, uh, parents prefer sons to daughters. There are many, many places in the world where there's very, very strong preference culturally to have sons instead of daughters. So ask yourself, in those cultures, if you go to adopt a child, if you look at the adoption agencies, do you think the adoption agencies get more requests for boys or more requests for girls? The obvious answer is people prefer boys, so the adoption agencies will get more requests for boys. It's not true. They get more requests for girls, and if you want to understand why, again, you just need to think a little bit about the incentives people are facing. These are cultures in which if people have a boy who is troublesome in one way or another, they will generally be willing to keep that boy in the family because they're so enthusiastic about having boys. If they've got a girl, the point is they are more likely to put a girl up for adoption just because of the fact that she's a girl. If you've got a boy with behavioral problems, if you've got a boy who's unhealthy, you tend to keep him in the family because you love boys. The boys who get put up for adoptions are the ones who are particularly bad in those dimensions. In order to put a boy up for adoption, there's going to have to be something very, very wrong with him. The behavioral problems or the health problems are going to have to be particularly severe. Girls, on the other hand, sometimes get put up for adoption just because they're girls, even though they're perfectly healthy, even though they're perfectly uh, well-behaved. Just because they're girls, they end up in the adoption agencies. If you're a parent in those cultures, you're going to be aware of that. And you're, even if you personally prefer boys, 
you're also going to realize that the boys in those adoption agencies are by and large pretty troublesome boys. The girls in those adoption agencies are are by and large, again, it's all on averages, but by and large, the girls are going to be much more the kind of child you're looking for. And so you will uh, sacrifice your preference for a boy in order to satisfy your preference for a healthy, well-behaved child. And you do that by choosing the girl. And again, that causes our brain to really have to flex in order to get around these different ideas and and realize, okay, yes, it makes sense, but that obvious answer isn't the right one. Uh, And that's, uh, again, true over and over and over again. I mentioned early uh, in the broadcast the problem where you put a strong pig and a weak pig in a box together, and the uh, the biologists have actually done this experiment. Uh, the economists could have told them how it was going to come out. You put a strong pig and a weak pig in a box, there's a lever at one end and a food bowl at the other end, and if the pig pushes the lever, the bowl fills up with food. Question is, who eats better, the strong pig or the weak pig? And the obvious answer is that the strong always dominate the weak and the strong pig eats better, but it isn't true. And once again, the reason for that, if you got to look at the incentives that in this case is the pigs are facing, uh, the weak pig has no incentive to push that lever because if the weak pig pushes the lever, the strong pig is going to wait by the bull and eat all the food and not let him have any. Uh, The strong pig, on the other hand, if the strong pig pushes the lever, the weak pig waits by the bull, eats most of the food until the strong pig comes running uh, the length of the box, pushes the strong pig away, uh, pushes the weak pig away, and gets the remains of the food, gets the last 15% or so of the food that the weak pig had not had time to eat. The strong pig, by pushing the lever, gets a little bit of food. The weak pig, by pushing the lever, gets no food. So the strong pig is willing to push the lever, uh, and the uh, weak pig uh, therefore gets most of the food. Uh, And that's exactly what happens when you put real-world pigs in a real-world box, and it's exactly what economic theory predicts will happen. (laughs) And so we see that with this book, Can You Outsmart an Economist?, we would at first realize, oh, guess we would not, but we can work our way to that point of getting smart, getting smarter, and and being more competitive in that way. And that's why this book, Can You Outsmart an Economist? 100 Plus Puzzles to Train Your Brain, has is so multifaceted, multifaceted and fascinating, and can really uh, not only just be such a an enhancer in our life and really help us. But uh, I think, you know, just to think in terms of conversations and be really stimulating among our with our friends, uh, it has great value that way as well. Well, I hope so. Uh, again, I, you know, what draws me to this stuff, what drew me to this stuff uh, in the beginning was that it just seems like so much fun to think about. And uh, again, I, I hope uh, some of the examples that we've just given uh, indicate it's, it's by no means is it all about financial markets. It's about uh, it's partly about financial markets, but it's also about anything where people are facing incentives and making decisions that look a little uh, screwy on the surface. But if you think harder about the incentives people were actually facing, you can often understand their behavior in a deeper way. It, it applies also to um, to political issues. Uh, for example. Uh, uh, 
a um, there's a very prominent journalist who recently tweeted that he could not understand why uh, there are so many more uh, fast food cooks than there are coal miners, yet it's the coal miners who get all the attention from the politicians. The politicians are always going to West Virginia talking about saving the jobs of the coal miners, improving conditions for the coal miners. The fast food clerks who are uh, the fast food servers and uh, cooks who are much more numerous don't get anything like that kind of attention from politicians. Why is that? Well, um, uh, economists know the answer to that. Uh, The answer is that there are a limited number of coal mines out there. Uh, There are an unlimited number of fast food joints. And so if you make conditions better for coal miners, conditions will get better for coal miners. If you make conditions better for fast food cooks, you will temporarily make conditions better for fast food cooks, but that will cause a lot of other people to become fast food cooks, and those new entrants will bid wages down and completely uh, uh, counteract all the good you've done. Uh, You can help coal miners because there is a limited number of spots for coal miners. You really can't do much to help fast food cooks in the long run because it is easy for new restaurants to open up. It's easy to create new jobs for fast food cooks. And therefore, the more you do to help them, the more new entrants there are going to be, the more their wages are going to go down and counteract the good you've done. Now, that you may view that as a very sad story, but it's a very true story. And it's the reason why politicians don't put a lot of effort in trying to help people in jobs that are easy to enter. It, that is so fascinating. And, you know, we, we learn so much, uh, you know, as a, a byproduct of seeing this and, and learning how to analyze. And you open up these doors for us in this wonderful new book, Professor Landsberg. It, it really um, is has such great value for us. So we can look at all aspects of our life this way. Uh, yeah, again, it's, uh, it, it applies to the way uh, people think about uh, uh, everything from how to choose a spouse to how to decide when to get divorced and how many children to have. And uh, uh, again, things in the political sphere, the policy sphere, how we see our politicians behaving, how we want them to behave, how you behave in business, how you deal with your friends, your customers, your suppliers. Uh, uh, these basic ideas apply to all of that. So then comes the question, and I, that many of us maybe think about is: Am I going to be smarter than Google as a result of this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are a couple of problems that uh, uh, Google uh, uses to uh, test their uh, their uh, potential job candidates. Uh, problems that they use in interviews that are used to get those uh, candidates to think deeply, to throw them a curve and see how well they can analyze a surprising problem. Uh, there are a couple of cases where you know, we, we don't know for sure what gets said in those interviews, but there are a lot of reports of what gets said in those interviews and what gets asked, and a couple of problems that apparently they have used over and over again, asking people to think uh, uh, deeply about uh, some uh, simple statistical issues or probability issues. 
it turns out that the answers that Google apparently has been expecting are – and those, those answers that Google has been expecting, if you find those answers, you're pretty smart. But in fact, if you're a little bit smarter, uh, you, can, you, can look, you can look even more deeply and see that those answers are not exactly right. I'm not sure uh, it's going to make good radio for us to talk about those because there are layers upon layers upon layers of levels at which you can answer those questions. But I'll give you an example of the sort of question it is. Uh, suppose in a family, uh, suppose, in, suppose we imagine a country where every family wants to have a son, and therefore they keep having children until they have a son, and then they stop. Uh, the question is, in that country, what will be the ratio of boys to girls? Now, uh, again, there are layers upon layers on which you can think about that question, and I, I think uh, you know, uh, probably it's, it's not good radio because you want to write down a few of your thoughts along the way as you go. But there is a very clever answer that Google is asking, is hoping that people will find. It turns out if you're a little bit cleverer, the answer that Google was looking for is not the right answer at all. And I'll refer readers to the book if they want to see more details on how that goes. Great reference at a good point, because this book is readily available uh, at all of our favorite book sources. And, and certainly, uh, you know, I think to this point, you, we've already been stimulated to realize the great value fun not being the least of it, but certainly the stimulation and and just uh, gaining a greater understanding, stretching our brain. Can You Outsmart an Economist uh, is is a book to pick up at one of those favorite book sources. Or uh, if people want to read a chapter for free, they can go to outsmartaneconomist.com. That's all one word, outsmartaneconomist.com. And uh, they can read the first chapter for free. They can read some reviews. They can read a little more about the book. And, of course, they can order it online. That is so perfect. So in terms of outsmarting an economist, and I, you're putting forth that challenge, essentially, do your students uh, work towards this? Are they wanting to outsmart you? Oh, all the time, and I reward them for it. Uh, every time I teach uh, a class, I... I uh, challenge my students with puzzles like this. I challenge my students with uh, uh, sometimes these exact puzzles, sometimes with other puzzles like them. And every year, somebody will come up with a, a solution that's not at all what I expected, but that shows real insight and teaches me a new way of thinking. It's, it's the, one of the great joys of teaching. You have good students, and they teach you new ways to think. And uh, uh, much of what is in this book is better than it would have been because I, I have better answers than I would have had if it weren't for the students I've taught over the years. A lot of what's in this book is what I've learned from my students. And isn't that also such an intriguing and fun thing to think about, that reciprocity that goes on? And, uh, you know, to be open to to continuing to learn, of course, and and how that is beneficial. I'm sure it's very exciting then for the students to be sitting in your classroom. Uh, I'm not sure that 100% of them would say that, but I, I do know that a great many of them do, and they, I, I do get a lot of very positive feedback on, uh, on my teaching, and I, again, I, I, I have lots of positive feedback uh, uh, 
to share with you on my students. I, I learn a tremendous amount from them, and uh, there are specific examples in the book. In fact, uh, Can You Outsmart an Economist, where, where I'll give the answer that I used to think was correct, and then a better answer that I got from one of my students. Uh, you'll, you'll find some examples of that in the book. And as students realize that, again, it, it must be um, greatly encouraging and and probably stimulating for others to realize, hey, wait a minute, you know, I have every opportunity to do something along those lines myself. Yeah. And, you know, I, another advantage of thinking uh, along these lines, which, which we haven't mentioned, is that I think it turns you into a more empathetic person in the sense that you see somebody doing something that doesn't seem to make sense, you've got two choices. You can say, oh, that person's crazy or, oh, that person's stupid. Or you can say, wow, I bet something's going on here I don't understand. Uh, Let's try and figure out what that is. Uh, Why is the person doing that? Why does it actually make sense for that person to be doing this crazy, apparently crazy thing? And in the course of doing that, you have to put yourself in the other person's shoes. You have to think about what problems is that other person facing and why does the obvious behavior not work out for that person why did that person have to think a little bit deeper why did that person have to find a surprising way to behave in the course of solving that puzzle you again you put yourself in that person's shoes and you you come to care about them a little more because you have thought about what it is like to face the problems that that person is facing. And so I, I think we, we learn to think better, but we also, to some extent, learn to feel better uh, when, we, uh, when, we, when we think in this way. And we get to appreciate how economics, which we might think of, depending on who we are, we might think of as being something that's just so much about numbers and it's kind of dry, but we really see how it opens up and it's all about, well, psychology, philosophy, literature in a way. Um, and of course, the brain science is, is not the least of it. So it's so fascinating. All those things, but also numbers too. You know, there are... Uh examples in the in the book where uh, there was a, a famous case at uh, the University of California at Berkeley a little while ago where uh, the number of female students being accepted to graduate school was much lower than the number of male students even though the applicants were clearly on average equally qualified uh this was a case that went to court a case of apparent gender discrimination it turns out if you look a little more carefully at the numbers nearly every department was accepting women at the same rate or a higher rate than they were accepting men. Now, how can that be? Overall in the university, overall in the university, men are being accepted at a much higher rate than women, and yet in each individual department, women are being accepted at a higher rate than men. That seems to make no sense, but if you think about it a little more deeply, it's entirely explained by the fact that women were disproportionately applying to the more selective departments. So if you've got a medical school where only 3% are accepted and a law school where 80% are accepted and most women apply to the medical school and most men apply to the law school, then of course, overall, men are going to do better because they're applying to the easy departments. 
women are going to do worse because they're applying to the uh, departments that make it very hard to get in. Once economists pointed this out and people took another look at the numbers with this in view, the case was very quickly thrown out of court. Wow. Isn't that just fascinating? Well, again, the fact that I... I find it fascinating, and the reason I wrote a book about these things is because I find it fascinating, and I hope I've done a good job of making it look fascinating to a lot of other people, too. Well, my feeling is that you certainly have. I hope that that will count for for some degree <laughs> of success. Certainly encouraging listeners to get your own copy and, and delve into this. I mean, it's not a book that you read uh, from cover... Well, eventually cover to cover, but you can jump in at any point and and pick out these stories randomly and just be really fascinated and learn a lot, just as you've shared with us this morning, Professor Landsberg. Absolutely. And again, readers who want a a taste of this, they can go and they can read a chapter for free at outsmartaneconomist.com. Perfect. And then pick out your own copy at any of your favorite bookstore sources. Those are definitely available or ask for it by name, correct? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so greatly for your insights, your wisdom, and, and the passion you obviously have for wanting to share all this information. I so greatly appreciate your being with us this morning. And thanks again for having me here.